You're listening to the Screeners Podcast Network. From the big screen to the small screen and everything in between, this is the Screeners Podcast, where all media is appreciated, but none is safe. Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Screeners. This is Chad. And I'm Daniel. And we're here to talk all things media, but we're very excited tonight. We have a special guest with us, someone that both Daniel and I have known for a long time. He is a professor at Lee University, Dr. Jeff Salyer, and we asked him specifically to be here tonight because he has a very unique perspective on our main event review, Pixar's Coco. When we were thinking about who we could ask to uh, be on this episode of the podcast, Jeff's name was right at the top. And so, Jeff, tell us a little bit, tell the people at home your unique relationship with the Pixar world and some of the work that you've done in that area. Hey, thanks for having me on the uh, podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Pixar's been kind of my thing. In grad school, I was known as the Pixar guy. I wrote almost every paper uh, for every class. I shoehorned into a Pixar kind of content, including my dissertation and uh, my PhDs in communication, but I really focused on uh, rhetorical studies, so understanding how rhetoric worked, and I focused mainly on film and media, and Pixar became the artifact or the studio that I chose to kind of study over the you know, several years and several films, and so I have a really close relationship to the their story and to their stories. Very cool, and so do, when I say this, there is no backhandedness to it, so we have with us tonight officially Dr. Pixar. I mean, I think it's safe to say that, Daniel. It's about time think? we had some legitimacy here. I mean, we need, this This place is needed to be classed Lord. up for quite some time, so we are, uh, we're polishing it up tonight with a legit PhD here to uh, help keep Daniel and I on track. As always, we want you to follow us on all of our social media outlets. You can go to Facebook and look for Screeners Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at ScreenersCast, and you can even email us, ScreenersCast at gmail.com, and we'll be sure to get right back to you. So with no further ado, let's jump in to our main event. Welcome to the main event. Uh, uh, it's you. You're going to get me in trouble, Dante. Someone could hear me. I wish someone wanted to hear me, other than you. No, I'm not supposed to love music. No music. No music. <laughs> but my great-grandma Coco's father was the greatest musician of all time. Papa. Ernesto de la Cruz. One day, he left with his guitar and never returned. No, my family thinks music is a curse. Great-great-grandfather, none of them understand me. I'm supposed to play music. All right, who's in there? I'm sorry. What's going on? I'm just dreaming. And that's from the trailer of Pixar's latest film, Coco. And this is a movie that I'm not sure that many people, at least in my circle, were very excited about seeing. I think before actually seeing this movie, it kind of fell into that already uh, prejudged kind of lesser tier like the good dinosaur kind of stuff so I'm going to be very interested to talk about this tonight with you guys to see if that actually those perceptions actually held true or if it was better but we can't talk about Coco without first talking about one of the one of the pillars one of the staples of any Pixar film is the short that happens prior to the film we've had some magnificent shorts over the years and I've come to expect excellence and wonderment and joy and enchantment from these from these shorts. This movie has something in front of it that was a little bit different, so I didn't want to jump into our review without at least giving us an opportunity to talk about the uh, Olaf's Frozen Adventure. So, I'll tell you what, Jeff, you're our special guest tonight, so I'm going to start with you. How did you think that worked? Uh, it did not work. The, <laughs> okay. It, it was a, you know, when you think of Olaf and when you think of Frozen, you think of Disney animation, and which is separate from Pixar animation. They've, they've been separate, even with John Lasseter running both divisions. The stories are always up, different. Up until now. But up we'll, until now, we'll talk, right, exactly. talk about that. But it's always been separate, and they've always had a different feel to each other as well, you know, and I... 
putting right. putting a frozen short in front of a Pixar movie felt like sacrilege a little bit kind of like crassing up maybe a Pixar maybe even uh, commercializing and we know Pixar and Disney are commercial entities to the nth degree but it just felt weird to not have a, a short like Lava which has a ton of heart and get your emotions going right before you see an emotional movie or at least what you perceive to be an emotional movie and I you know it fell flat and just if you're talking about just itself it was too long it didn't hit on a lot of beats. My daughter, when my daughter looks over into me and says, "This is a long short," you know it's a long <laughs> wow. short. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Daniel. What about you? I think I, uh, I we just came off of Thanksgiving break, but I feel like you had some strong feelings about this uh, short, quote unquote, as well. Are you you're in line with uh, with Jeff? I absolutely am. Look, my showtime was at eight thirty five. Uh, then, of course, there are the normal trailers. And then there's a 21-minute Olaf's Frozen Adventure. And then there's a little short featurette making of Coco, and thank, where the filmmakers thank you for coming to the theater, which was probably a minute or two minutes. And then we have the movie. And so my showtime was 8.35. Movie didn't start till 9.18, okay? I looked at my, my phone because I was so bored and ready for this movie to start. So that was really frustrating. Um, even before we start talking about the, the quality of the short, that was just a really poor decision, especially for, for a children's film. You're asking kids to sit there for an extra half an hour before the movie even starts. I, that's just a bad move. So, But the thing that I, I don't want to get too, uh, too fixated on the, the length of it, because I think Disney is already going to get the message, okay, the, the thing was too long. Let's not do that again. But that's not the only problem here. Exactly like Jeff said, the, the short just sucks. Like, it's just not good. It was just a cheap, cheaply produced short that was just a, um, trying to propagate their own franchises. There was uh, nothing interesting in it. There was nothing good about it. It, it was just kind of weird. The song was terrible. It was just it was just weird to sit there and watch it because it was so bad. So I, it was just mind-boggling. So, yeah, it was a complete failure all around and a ba- really bad way to go into the movie Coco. So I'm confused. So you didn't like it? Yeah, just to be clear, I didn't okay. like it. Okay, okay. I hate to beat a, a dead horse there, but my wife uh, and I saw this. We took our, our son, and we went with uh, several of the cousins and family to see this over Thanksgiving. And my wife has a condition. Uh, it hasn't been officially diagnosed yet, but I believe she has it. It's called cinema-induced narcolepsy. <laughs> And it doesn't matter what time we watch a movie. We could start a movie at noon. We could start a movie at 8 in the morning. We could start a movie. It doesn't matter when we start it. About 15 minutes in, she's pretty much going to fall asleep. She's going to be out. And so this was like a perfect storm. This was her worst nightmare because she hates trailers because they're always 30 minutes long. And then on top of this to pile in another 20 minutes, she she looked at me literally maybe eight minutes into the into the short and said, I think I'm going to I'm going to have to leave. I mean, she was she was not having it. (laughs) I think this was a big misstep. I don't I I think I, I understand. I think the logic of why they would try to do this, trying to capitalize on the undeniable popularity of Frozen. But at the same time, I. I think the problem I had with it outside of the fact that it felt creatively bankrupt was just the fact that, and it's one of those things that may be a little bit hard to explain, and I think Jeff touched on it a little bit, is it almost felt dirty. Do you know what I mean? Like it felt yeah. like the sake, dirty in a way of, of a mismatch with Pixar. It felt like this is not what Pixar does. Now, make no mistake, Pixar does do this kind of thing for sure, but not in this way. It was the first time where I felt like this is just I, this is just not a good deal. And it was I, I wouldn't go as far as to say the music was terrible, but it was certainly not inspiring. And it was just this little mini musical. And Olaf, who is best used as kind of an ancillary accent, when you put him front and center, it really, really doesn't work. And so people are pretty tired by the time that you get to the movie. And I think that this movie uh, deserved a little better, which we'll we'll get into that here. So. Overall, I think uh, our mini review here of Olaf's Frozen Adventure is that there wasn't much adventure, but it was frozen uh, and and not great. So hopefully they'll learn from their mistakes moving forward. Uh, don't I- be surprised if you see more of this because what what has happened is that Disney animation has been revived 
with recent success, and they're going to try to blend the two as much as you as much as they can. And as Daniel alluded to a while ago, with Lassiter uh, being gone for at least yep. six months, maybe permanently, permanently um, for sure. Then I think you're going to run into um, well, there's a, that's a bigger issue, but they're going to go with what works. And so it's a merchandising thing, it's a Disney parks thing, it's you yep. know it basically Pixar got the Disney treatment, which they had avoided for the most part, uh, for, you know, several years. It's going to be pretty difficult to really talk about this movie at the level that we want to talk about it without getting into spoilers rather quickly tonight. So we're going to go around, and I'm going to ask the guys to give their general impressions about the film overall and what stood out to them. And then we're going to very quickly get into spoilers so that we can can break down this film. This is uh, directed, actually, their uh, co-director here. We've got uh, Lee Unkrich and Adrian Molina uh, as the co-director. Uh, Unkrich obviously uh, directed Toy Story 3. And before we get into your general impressions, I did want to ask you this question to lead off. Were you excited about this film? Did this trailer appeal to you in a way that you thought this this could be a great Pixar movie or at least a good Pixar movie? And then tell me what you thought about it. This time, let's start with Daniel. Daniel, what did you think? Uh, yeah, so to answer your first question, was I excited? Um, I, I was mildly excited. As excited as I am about most Pixar movies, um, the, the, the thing that had me on edge about it was that I had just really haven't seen too much marketing for it, uh, at least just kind of in my circles. I just I felt like they weren't pushing this movie very much, which I found to be odd. So I was worried that it would be bad or whatever. But the trailer was fine. Not The trailer wasn't necessarily, you know, incredible, but it had me relatively excited. The, the good news is it's a fantastic movie. And uh, what I love about Coco is just there's this deep and rich sense of culture throughout the movie that's the main thing that i took away from it the the mexican cities and colors and identity it's it's really very present here and it makes this movie feel so different from other pixar movies that's what i loved it was very unique at least among uh you know its own class of movies and uh, along with the culture, there are pretty unique themes that we haven't seen as much of. It's really about family dynamics and devotion to family and, you know, legacy and balancing what you're passionate about, all these things. And they're, they're, they're really complex themes, actually. And, and the movie handles them really well. Um, and so this, this comes out to be one of the most thematically complex Pixar movies yet. And they've had you know, quite a few complex movies, Inside Out and others. And then, of course, as you would expect, the animation is beautiful. This is probably their best-looking film since The Good Dinosaur. Um, it, the, the, it's just really uh, a stunning movie uh, all around. And so I really, really enjoyed this movie. It's it's uh, one of Pixar's best in years. It's got really funny moments and some small small twist that worked well enough so yeah i just really like this movie and also it's got one of pixar's first murder plots which was uh which was really surprising and and, uh it it was really good actually so overall this is a really fantastic movie a return to what pixar does best and uh, i liked it quite a lot so daniel with a strong recommendation and the minor spoiler about the murder plot but oh that's no spoiler uh, I'm gonna say yeah, it is, but that's okay. Oh, I mean, on. you know, if you don't know, if you if you're going into Coco, you're not thinking murder. So I mean, maybe it's a spoiler. <laughs> so uh, Jeff, obviously, you have a rich history with Pixar. It goes without saying, you've done um, who knows how many hundreds of hours of research. So, but my my original question to you again is, what did you think about the marketing around this film? And then did this live up to uh, whatever expectations you may have had? So Coco has a history too in the Pixar world of getting delayed, not necessarily shelved, but delayed a couple of times. It was always known as the Day of the Dead film, and it didn't really have a name, and it took them a long time to kind of actually flesh out the story. It's one of those that gets re retold and rewritten, and once we get some background information after the film's out for a while, we'll hear more about it, but I'm sure. But, but I saw the marketing more along the lines of Up!, so if you remember when Up came out, the, basically the trailer showed this floating house and this old dude and a young guy. And that was about it. It didn't really give you a whole lot of the story. And nobody really knew what to expect out of Up. And then Up becomes the most fantastic Pixar movie yet, you know, to that point. Or one of the most, you know, depending right. on your opinion. My, it, was one, it was my favorite. And I felt like Coco was very similar in that... 
They're going to tease you enough with the beautiful uh, animation. They're going to tease you enough with, okay, this is about, this is going to be about a musician. This is, and they're going to tease you enough with, this is the Day of the Dead, which for me, that's the genius of Pixar's marketing on this because most Americans, most people who are not familiar, or most of their audience who are not familiar with a Mexican culture, don't know what the Day of the Dead is. At least I didn't go in, going in, and nobody I know knew what is this, what's it about, and I think that's what was scary with some of their marketing is scarier with pushing the film um, earlier than it came out now. But they executed it geniusly because it gives just enough exposition about what the Day of the Dead is and what this means, and then it connects everything. And you know, so their marketing it, it, it was better for me because it wasn't Cars Three, where you know you got Tomater right. and Lightning McQueen running around all over the place, and it wasn't Finding Dory, where you know what you're going to get there. You know, it wasn't their thing. Even the Good Dinosaur had better marketing, better in quotes their marketing because of its you know the characters and the animation. They really kind of pushed the story, even the story there. You knew what was going on. I think that's the beauty of it. You didn't really know what was going on going in, and now they've got this word of mouth. Uh, people are saying, wow, this is beautiful. Wow, it tells a great story. I think that's what they were going for anyway. I think It's classic Pixar. Agreed. Uh, what were your thoughts overall on how this movie worked? Was it up to what you would say is upper-tier Pixar, mid-tier? I think it I think it squarely sits in the upper tier. You know, when I, I have a ranking um, that it's flexible, it changes over time. And as, <laughs> right. as any time, wherever you are in your life, your rankings change. That's the truth with my top five movies of all time. But my top five Pixar's, they shift around. Um, and I would put it up there uh, at the higher level, uh, you know, along with like The Incredibles and Up and Inside Out and Toy Story 3 um, and Wally, and I, you know, I would put it wow. up there. Yeah, I, I really do. I think it's, I, I think it's that good a film. And I think once a second and third viewing of it, it's going to reveal even more depth to it because it fits. I don't know if you want to get into this now. It fits with what I've been researching, what Pixar does, and it really um, envelops the idea of family and the concept of achievement in one narrative, in one film, and it, which really sets place like. He's got a kid as a hero. He's got to go after his dreams. But what matters the most? You know, those kinds of things resonate with audiences and they resonate in narrative to like up, right? I mean, it from or like inside out. And it to those it kind of fits in that level. I'm not gonna say it's the best. I'm but I am gonna say everybody's worried about when Pixar is gonna have their first dud. This was not it. This was the this was the move. This was the anti Cars three. This is the anti good dinosaur. You know, this is this is as good as Inside Out as far as moving the brand further into it. And I'm excited about what's coming up next for them. So that's you know that that's what they want to do. They want to create the excitement for the future by creating a film that's unique. And that's what Pixar does best is the unique stuff. You know, not right. the not the cookie cutter stuff. That's what Disney did for so many years, and that's what got them in trouble. People expect Pixar to be putting out the Inside Outs and the Wall-E's. You know, they don't want the Cars Three. No, I don't. I don't know anybody who wanted Cars Three, except maybe my five-year-old son. Right, right, and you know, to be fair, I think Cars Three was a little better than I anticipated it. But uh, I, I would also say this too: I, I would say that Pixar's had a dud. For me, it was Cars Two. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really disliked that film a great deal. I also wasn't very big, big on Brave, but I don't think I wouldn't go as far as to say that was a, a full-on dud. But one of the things for me that that I really felt like was excellent in this movie it, it was talks about family talks about tradition talks about achievement but one of the things that really came through a lot that had me going back and forth a few times is it also talks a lot about responsibility trying to keep this generic before we get into spoilers you have this kid who has a dream and has something that he wants to do something that fulfills him and it's the classic tale of the family doesn't want you to do a certain thing for a certain reason but that's the one thing that makes you feel alive but then they also do a very 
very good job of all of counterbalancing that with being a responsible person and growing up at, from being a boy into a man and the things that you need to do to support yourself and your family and the tension in that that I think all of us have felt at some point in going for your dream versus doing what you need to do to put food on the table. And I think this movie does a great job of exploring that as well. For me, I'm going to line up right with you guys and say I think this movie is fan-freaking-tastic. I had no hopes that it was going to be as good as it was. Not for any reason. I just, I felt that, you know, after hearing Jeff's take on the strategy behind the marketing, I agree with that and can see that. But going into this, I was more in line with Daniel thinking that it's got a November release. We had Cars 3 in the summer. This is probably just going to be dumped here in the fall. It's not going to be anything spectacular. And I could not have been more wrong. I I think this is a, a clear love letter to Mexico and the Mexican culture. One of the things that I that I really loved about this was it talks about the expression of the artist, and I agree with you, Jeff, a hundred percent. That one of the master strokes in in the writing of this film is that it very early on and very clearly establishes what is the Day of the Dead, how does it work in this culture, what does it mean, what is at stake, and within the first maybe twenty minutes. We have this structure of what needs to happen, the MacGuffin, if you will, but but not, I don't mean that in a negative way, but what needs to happen, what characters need to do what in order to achieve the certain goal, and it doesn't do it in a way that feels exposition heavy. It's organic to what the characters would naturally do, and entertaining, and funny, all along the way, and so you, you buckle in after about 20 minutes, and you're just ready for the ride and, and where this movie is going to take you. It has some of the absolute most stunning visuals that I've ever seen, specifically in this medium related to some facial work that they do. Uh, the character of Coco herself is, I mean, um, it's staggering how much emotion is conveyed with almost no visible representation of said emotion. It's just gorgeous. There's a water effect in here towards the end that is so photorealistic that it it just blew my mind. This movie, for sure, is way up in the top tier for me. I haven't had a chance to really reflect on my my ranking, but it's in the conversation for sure for the top uh, five for sure because it is, it's just that good and I cannot wait to see it again. So, uh, anything else you guys want to talk about generally before we get into spoilers and make our recommendations? The music is great, too. Uh, this is very uh, a music-heavy Pixar film. Not in that it's a musical, but it's just that's what the main character wants to do. Music is just his passion. And so there's this song, Remember Me, that is plays throughout the whole thing that I really liked. I thought it was great. And going back to what you said, Chad, about the animation, um, you know, they, they went to really painstaking you know detail to, to show exactly the fingers on the right strings for the guitar and I mean the amount right. of work that went into that I can't even begin to fathom uh, but it was it was totally worth it and I think that's why they they show you that Daniel mentioned that little piece before the film starts like the behind the scenes I think they wanted to introduce you to the fact that there's this multi-layered complexity for people who don't necessarily appreciate that I think what happens is in 3D animation now, people are used to a lot of motion capture too. And so right. this kind of distinguishes it from motion capture, green screen, live action animation into that world of fully animated modeling and lighting and rigging. And I mean, they use those those terms in that little intro to kind of distinguish it as, hey, this is an art and a craft that is also technically... Um, sound and very difficult to do and we went to all this painstaking thing to give you a good product and I don't know that they're doing that you know overtly for that very reason but it does that it works that way to like okay I'm going to pay attention so when we when we do that kind of pan around shot and you see the city then you're like whoa that is super cool and super layered and I get that the complexity of that is important and then like what you said Chad I do I appreciate good animation I think when we watched The Good Dinosaur my wife pointed out all the good animation and I pointed out all the story flaws and <laughs> and then on this one it was both and it, to the point of and this is when I knew that they had come to another level in animation they sucked you in and you feel like it's live action 
and they could right. do that anyway. But when you're doing with real people, not animals, not cars, you feel like this is you are in that place, and it does things that live action can't do at the same time mimicking live action. It's a really interesting spot for the audience to be in. It is, and the construct of these, uh, and it's in the trailer, so it's not a spoiler, but the construct of these two worlds that work together and inform each other is a tried-and-true storytelling conceit that can very easily not work, but they did a masterful job of, of balancing those two those two things together. It's it, and If there is anything that I have seen cr- from a critique standpoint, and I think right now it stands at about, the last time I looked, it was a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 97 or 98% from an audience standpoint. And so it's it's universally getting praised. The one critique that I've seen a couple of times is that some people feel that the plot is a little overly complex. Now, I didn't get that, but I could kind of see that. Did did that ever occur to any of you guys that you thought it might be a little convoluted or complex? Too complex, I should say. Too complex for who? I mean, it for a child, maybe, but these aren't kids' films. These And I argue this in my dissertation. These aren't... These are... Films that kids will watch, but they're squarely targeted to adults and all ages. But I didn't, I didn't feel like it was overly complex compared to some of the other stuff. I don't, I didn't even think it was as dark as some of the other films they've done. And um, so, I, yeah, I didn't think it was that complex. Daniel, yeah, no, I agree. I think uh, it certainly was thematically complex, but. Um, not overly, so not not in a negative way at all. Uh, I, I found it to be rich and deep, uh, but not like not convoluted. So yeah, I, I don't get yeah. that. Agreed. It was very very satisfying overall. This is just to say it again. I, I think this is a clear home run for Pixar. So what we're going to do before we go into spoilers is we're going to go around and make our recommendations. Daniel, we'll start with you. So your options are: should people screen this in the theater? Should they rent it? Should they not rent it and just stream it? Or should they skip it altogether? I think the answer to that is pretty obvious. You definitely should see this in the theater. Um, As with all Pixar movies, it is beautiful. We've already talked about that over and over again. But it's definitely a theatrical experience. Now, as those words were coming out of my mouth, I remembered the short and uh, before the movie. So if you're at home, you can skip that. Uh, so now I'm debating. But no, uh, it's still worth going to see in the theaters for Coco. Don't let Olaf uh, scare you away because the movie is still worth it. Jeff, same question. Should they see it in the theater? Should they rent it, stream it, or skip it? Uh, I definitely would say you need to see this in the theater because of the richness of it, and you get that on the screen. The bigger the screen, the better the sound system. You should do it for sure. And then buy it when it comes out because your kids are going to love it too. Yeah, it's a day one buy on Blu-ray for sure. I mean, this is a 4K Blu-ray. This is, I mean, just amazingly good. And I'm going to say the same thing. You should see it in the theater as soon as possible. So with that, let's move to spoilers for Coco. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Well, you look nervous. Is it the scars? You want to know how I got them? There's so many places it would never occur to a hawk to hide. However, the reason the Führer's brought me off my Alps in Austria and placed me in French cow country today is because it does occur to me. Because I'm aware what tremendous feats human beings are capable of once they abandon dignity. And in the dream, I knew that he was going on ahead. And he's fixing to make a fire somewhere out there in all that dark and all that cold. I knew that whenever I got there, he'd be there. Then I woke up. We start this film out with uh, learning that we have Miguel, uh, which, by the way, I don't think we've specifically mentioned the just the voice acting in general. I thought it was superb. I don't know about you guys. Yeah. I thought it, everybody was really, really great. And Miguel is voiced by um, Anthony Gonzalez. And he's our main character who is a frustrated musician whose family makes shoes. So we learn very early on that Ernesto de la Cruz, who's voiced by Benjamin Bratt, left his wife and child to pursue his dream to be a famous musician and, in fact, achieve that goal. And it so broke the family that they outlawed music altogether so that no one could ever play music there's a funny sequence as as abelita comes out and literally yells at mariachis as 
they're playing. No music is allowed, and they've developed their own shoe business, which is how they survive. And all Miguel wants to do is play music. I think in spoilers specifically, one of the, the things I want to talk about, Jeff, is just to go back to you a little bit and have you expand a little bit, uh, and same thing, Daniel, on the themes that you uh, were able to see here specifically to achievement. And so let's talk a little bit about how that stuck out to you. Yeah, so I think, you know, the whole goal that Miguel has is is several, it's complex. It's a complex goal. Because like any child, it's almost a coming-of-age story, and, and it happens over the course of one day. But Miguel wants to spark out on his own and do his own thing. He doesn't want to be in the family business. He doesn't want to make shoes. He doesn't want to shine shoes. And he feels drawn to the art. He feels drawn to music. And right. I think part of that, though, is he does have this desire to be become De La Cruz before he knows who De La Cruz is, right? He he has his own shrine to De La Cruz's room, and he that's how he learns is by VHS tapes of De La Cruz playing the guitar and singing. And he has this goal of becoming a mariachi or becoming a, a world fame, a Mexican famous mariachi musician to, to achieve the same kind of fame that Dela Cruz. When I was watching it, I thought Dela Cruz is Elvis, right? The American right. version of Elvis. He's in movies. All the women love him. He sings the most famous songs, and people swoon. And he's the most well-known rock and roll star. All and Dela Cruz is that is that same thing. And he his goals though are not for family they're kind of anti-family it's not about connecting at the beginning it's about it's about starting out on his own and so it's they're almost selfish goals almost goals of freedom um and it does swing around though to where that achievement he realizes what that actually brings and the sacrifice that goes into that whether it is what his perception is eventually the, the family is being sacrificed or if it becomes more along the lines of what he's got to sacrifice because of for family because that's more important kind of thing. Absolutely, Daniel. Yeah, I I, uh, I think Jeff is right on everything that he touched on. I also think that there's a lot of uh, focus on legacy. Um, like I said, the main song there is called "Remember Me," and uh, you know, and when Miguel meets uh, uh, when he meets Hector, that's the whole. He needs to be remembered. He needs somebody out there in 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 the real world to remember him. Otherwise, he's going to disappear. And so it sets up all these uh, ideas of what has your life meant, and and who have you affected, and um, and not only you know positively and then uh, negatively with with De La Cruz. So I just I thought it was really uh, complex and really really fascinating to watch. It is fascinating. And then on top of all of that, we have this the basic plot machinations of the entire journey here is trying to get to Miguel for Miguel to try and get to. Uh, Ernesto de la Cruz because he believes he's his grandfather and Hector becomes or his great great grandfather and Hector becomes his guide and we learn early on that Hector cannot come to the land of the living because no one has put up his picture and he is being forgotten. Uh, we later get a very uh, moving sequence where they go to, to get his guitar because the, the 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 one way that Miguel can actually get to De La Cruz is to win a contest and he needs a guitar. So Hector takes him to a, a friend of theirs to get a guitar and we see him fade away because he has been forgotten. And I did think, while I agree with I agree with Jeff that, that Pixar has done some darker things, I do think that these kinds of sequences, especially for younger viewers, ask some very interesting questions and make you consider things about what it is to be alive and if you are not being talked about after you're gone, you don't exist anymore in the present. So I think there's lots of things that that this movie touches on, all wrapped in kind of a, a hero's journey to get to his great-great-grandfather, and then we get the twist that Hector is his grandfather. Let me ask you guys this, too. Did you like the character of Hector, the way that he played kind of this bumbling, goofy? Did you like that, uh, that partnership that he has with Miguel? I liked him. Uh, I thought he was, you know, charming. I thought he was... Um well, I didn't. I don't think the twist was that that twisty. It was kind of obvious. I thought um, uh, at a certain point, so right. it wasn't a huge twist, but it was good. It was it was a nice plot change there because uh, yeah, it worked. Hector was a good character overall. 
So I would okay. I would say they probably set and developed Hector, Hector's character for months. He probably got redrawn. He probably got reconfigured yeah. a lot because he is the central character. He is the mentor, yet at the same time he's the 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 quest, the um, subject of the quest. You mentioned hero's journey, and it kind of goes to the Vogler, Christopher Vogler's um, methodology of looking at these films and writing films, and. I would say for me, it was really close to what it should have been. It may he might have been a little bit more confident. I think he came across more of like Jack Sparrowish than what we would uh, we would that I would have hoped for. And a part of that though is because he has to be somewhat of a bumble a bumbly kind of guy because he got taken advantage of, you know, in right. when he was alive. And I think that personality doesn't change when you die you know as far as the movie would go it wouldn't make sense for him to be vindictive because he wasn't vindictive in life or he wasn't you know wasn't vengeful so i don't know to the fact that even he didn't see his ex-wife in the in the land of the dead even though he couldn't right so i think he had to have some sort of humility maybe he was a little too bumbly you know, on the bumbly side of humility, he's just this kind of gangly, not confident person. And I think, I think for sure, the fact because that that specific thing did come up at the end, where I thought, after all of these years, why has he not talked with his wife to at least let her know? And he's so defeated and sort of non-confrontational that he's just willing to kind of rot away and hope for the best which leads us now to the to the confrontation where uh, Hector learns that De La Cruz is not his great-great-grandfather it's actually Hector we get a great flashback where we see that Hector was murdered by De La Cruz by poison which takes us back to what Daniel was saying about uh, which some murder has happened I think in the Pixar universe before but I don't know that it's been this overt where we just see the guy get poisoned because he was uh, we learned that Hector had actually written all of the songs and the lyrics from poems and De La Cruz uh, was going to be left by Hector because he wanted to return home. So we learn that this entire thing has been about the breakup of a family because they thought that Hector just left the, the the family to get famous, and in fact, he was trying to get home and was murdered. And so that's a pretty dark twist for a Pixar movie, Jeff. Okay. I mean, are there any um, anything that you can think of in, in past Pixar films that, that approach that? Not necessarily to that. So if you remember in Up, the character of Muntz in Up was um, a the explorer that was. If you remember, he's he's the one that had the blimp, and he's the explorer, right. and he killed everybody who came in his path. And he makes it clear that he did because he shows them Carl Fredrickson and Russell their helmets and says anybody that came here didn't come looking anymore. But it wasn't explicit. Right. You could pick up on it. Like I said, you know, adults pick up on that. Hey, let's just you know, Finding Nemo starts with a massacre. Uh, True. <laughs> It's true, absolutely uh, true, and you know, and then there's there's all these kind of violent things. Bugs Life is full of this kind of fascist um, ideology, you know, the counter to the fascist idea of the the grasshopper. And there's some of these things. There are really dark themes in Up. It's not necessarily murder, but in that opening sequence, that's just yeah. gut wrenching. You talk about infertility, and you talk about loss right. of dreams and death and there's death in all these films you know there's there's at least the concept of death they don't hide from these kinds of things now to have a murder plot like daniel put that's true there there hasn't necessarily been a murder plot explicitly shown on screen either um and so it does get darker that's the charm of pixar a little bit too is that they can show you this dark stuff and so show what comes from the dark stuff it's a beautiful thing about coco too even though this family kind of cursed and became cursed because of this one incident they are able to overcome that curse and i think that's that gives uh life to the viewer uh, many of which feel like they can't escape where they are you know they can't escape their situation whether it's socioeconomic or if it's abuse or something like that you know these films they show the dark but then they also show the light and that's part of my argument is they're they're looking for this kind of big t truth by exposing all these values that are out there and so even in the dark you know there's a redemption point that has to come from that right and that is part of the part of the brilliance of pixar and in their best work Uh, and we learn too that uh, mama imelda 
who is the one who has essentially put the curse on the family, actually was a musician and singer herself. And we see that in a sequence where she's with Miguel and he's running away and she begins to sing to him. And we see through that moment that music is very important to her and it's too painful for her to deal with because it ties back to the memory of Hector leaving her. They actually used to perform together. And so it's really kind of a forlorn moment that we get, but we also see the window back to where we think things are going to go, which leads us to the ending concert, and there's a confrontation where De La Cruz is confronted, and Miguel now knows the truth about Hector, and Hector has a moment to uh, interact with Imelda. Imelda knows the truth and doesn't forgive him right away, but, but through some interactions, we see that they are going to be coming back. The spark is still there, if you will, and that there is hope, and eventually, the world sees what De La Cruz is, and I really thought this was was interesting too because I think this movie does a does a pretty good job of asking the question how far would you go and how far is too far to do what makes you happy even if it is to the detriment of others because De La Cruz was the most famous musician was the most beloved everyone loved him but there was a darker truth behind the scenes and and not to get political because we don't do politics here but for sure there's there are echoes of that happening in the real world today with people that are idolized because of their talent and they're lifted up because of what they do aren't necessarily always the best people behind the scenes so i think this was also pretty relevant for today as well definitely the themes of how far are you going to go i mean uh, that's that's the thing that i love the most is you know it didn't just say Pursue your passions, you know, forget everything, forget your, you know, forget your family for telling you you can't do it. It was saying, yes, pursue your passions, do what you love, but find a way to balance the two. Uh, Because if Miguel had just pursued music and had gone off on his own, he would have ended up like De La Cruz, uh, you know, somebody who just didn't didn't care about who, who he hurt in this path. But instead, it's finding the the balance of loving your family uh, because, you know, your passions are nothing without the people you love. So I thought that was really great. It's not about unrequited ambition, and Pixar does this a lot where characters, main characters especially, will go after something and they'll give little thought to the other and what that means to the other. For example, in uh, The Incredibles, you know, Bob wants to be a superhero and he doesn't really care what it does to his family. That's his ambition is to be a superhero again. In Ratatouille, mm-hmm. you know, similar wants to be a chef and but don't care about what other people think about it. Monsters, Inc. and Monsters University is a great example of this too where, you know, the, Mike Wazowski, they're, they're in, especially in university, they're in competition with each other. You, you don't, you see they're just blind ambition and it's not until they get beyond ambition to this kind of idea of it's more than just ambition. It's what I call acknowledgement, right? So to the point where your art is acknowledged by others because you value others. So the acknowledgement of others is important to you, but because you value their acknowledgement, because you value them. And I think that's what Pixar tries to do with a lot of, even the Cars franchises do this, right? Um, Cars 1 especially, where it's all about him and his ambition to be the best stock car racer, and he just leaves everybody in the dirt until he figures it out. And that's really on the nose for Pixar. These are a little little, uh, more complex, deeper, harder to get, but it's there that the ambition's good when others are included, in this case, when family's included, which is the the highest value is your family. And I think of all the the Pixar films that are because we've explored family and the importance of family in the past this one may be the strongest one with that specific theme for me we now come to the very end of the film where we we know that hector is about to be forgotten and coco who is his daughter who is in her 90s you would you would guess is in the throes of dementia she's forgetting her father finally mama imelda gives her blessing to Miguel to go back to the land of the living. He comes back and he gets to Coco and he tries to talk with her to against the uh, wishes of her family. And they're very upset because they still are anti-music. And in one of the most beautiful sequences that, from a Pixar film th- that I've ever seen, 
He sings the song, Remember Me, which we learn was written for her, specifically by Hector, that he sang to her when she was a little child. And to say that my entire theater was weeping is an understatement to weeping. I mean, you could hear people around you crying everywhere. I mean, there are mountains of research and impatience with dementia and Alzheimer's who have very little, uh, or who are cognizant of very little, can all of the sudden be be brought back by singing and uh, I, as a matter of fact I know a, a guy who sang in a quartet for years and years and he had uh, full-on Alzheimer's and uh, just literally two months before he passed away they brought him uh, from the home that he was in to a show with a chorus that he used to sing with and they brought him up on stage and he did it wasn't he was really unaware of where he was and they started to sing this song that he used to have this solo for and it had been years decades since he'd sung it and all of a sudden he lit up and sang the entire song beautifully and this is a true story for pixar to now after going through all these other themes to end this film with moment of of care and beauty to someone who is in dementia and then use it i thought was handled in a very respectful and beautiful way how did that ending work for you guys i thought the ending was beautiful like like you said you know that moment you realize it's not just a connection with the, the miguel and his and coco it's a connection with coco to her past and a connection with coco and her present and in a way, if you think about it, it became a connection to the future because where she ends up going. And, you know, the music, Pixar is known for their music. I mean, if, you, if I hear the score for Up, I weep. It's just part of, it's just what I do, you know. Toy Story 3, I weep. And, um, and they did it again. And because music is very, very powerful, and they did handle it very well. You know, it was sweet. It wasn't saccharine. And it wasn't right. it wasn't um, rushed, right? It took it, they took their time with it, and I think that that's part of it. Again, I, that nothing Pixar does is unplanned, and I think they just took their time with it and said, "We're going to live in this moment for a second, and it's going to push us to the next moment, but we're not going to rush it because if we rush it, then it becomes plot device rather than actual connective." you know, a connective moment. And to see the looks on the, the faces of the other family, like Abuelita, and their recognition of the power of music takes us to a beautiful sequence a year later where we see that Coco is now, uh, has passed away, and it ends in a beautiful fiesta at the uh, at the end of the, of the picture. And it just closes out in a, a very uplifting and, and, and wonderful, wonderful way. Well, it's a big thumbs up from us, from the screeners. I, I think it goes without saying that if you had not planned on seeing Coco, you need to go out and you need to see it right away. You will not be disappointed. It is one of Pixar's best. So with that, let's move to our top three. Three, two, one. The top three. All right, for our top three this evening, we are tying it right into Coco, which had such an incredible ending. And so we are going to talk about our top three Pixar endings. Okay, we've already gone and we've, uh, you know, on earlier episodes, we've listed all our favorite Pixar movies, all that stuff. So we got more specific today and we're just talking about our favorite endings. All right, but as usual, that's up for interpretation. I don't know how you can misinterpret that one, but you can. There are no rules in our top three. Best Pixar ending is whatever you want to make it. For our number three, we're going to go to Jeff first. Jeff, uh, you're our resident Pixar expert, so I'm sure you've got uh, a lot to say about Pixar endings. What is your third favorite Pixar ending? Well, we just talked a long time about it, but it's got to be Coco. Uh, just a right. wonderful, wonderful, beautiful end. Awesome. All right. So picking a recent one for the, for the top three. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Great. All right. Chad, what is your number three? My number three is a movie that I think Jeff loves a lot. I know Jeff and I, I haven't seen Jeff's list. I would like to hear about it before we go. But my number three is Up. I don't know what it is, but every time I think about the, the and we should say this, so spoilers for these movies oh, that yeah. we're going to talk about. Definitely. Okay, so, but this, if you haven't seen these by now, that's your fault. So there's something about that ceremony at the end where he puts that, that L, is it Ellie badge yep. 
uh, on him at the end that wrecks me every time just thinking about it. Just the affirmation there, a stoic character who has a a difficult time expressing outward emotion, that that gesture is so significant, and it gets me every time. So for me, it's up. Awesome. Great choice. Uh, For my number three pick... Pixar does the the emotional uh, ending so well. There's so many examples of that. Uh, but for number three, I went with Toy Story, and it's a little bit different. Yes, there's the emotional aspect. It's fantastic. But it's also, the reason I picked it is it's a little bit more uh, comedic, I think. Uh, you know, it ends with the opening Christmas presents, and, and it's a dog and that whole gag. And uh, so I just love that. And, um, and you know, it's yeah. the original Pixar movie. So there you go. That is my number three pick. Good for you, Daniel. That's that's true. Because when we say top three innings, most we we go straight to the sad stuff. But that's a good that's a good pick. Thank you. I thought so too. All right, Jeff. What is your second favorite Pixar ending? So Chad just stole a little thunder there. It's up. <laughs> good afternoon. Are you in need of any assistance today, sir? No. I could help you cross the street. No. I could help you cross your yard. No. I could help you cross your... Ow. All his life, Carl Fredrickson dreamed of adventure. Today, his adventure is finally taking off. So adventure is out there. So, you know, that very last thing is like Chad was talking about. It's like wrapping up all his kind of dreams into this one moment. And it shifts. Like his whole focus shifts. And you realize that because you can put yourself in his footsteps or in his in his shoes. Or you can put yourself in Russell's shoes at that moment. And you feel for all the characters involved. And it's just a great little kind of ending. And I love that. And it is still comedic there with the airship kind of floating above with all the dogs. And it's still funny, but it, it, it gets me. And the music's there. That... that that whole score that just goes throughout the whole film, and so every time I, you know, I just, I actually at that one I smile. You know, it's just a big smile, maybe with one tear. So that's why it's my number two. Awesome, great pick. All right, Chad, yeah. your number two favorite ending. So I went back and forth with these two, and very much like Jeff said earlier, depending on where you are in your life. Daniel, you don't know about this yet because you're still so young, (laughs) disgustingly young. But, you know, depending on where you are in your life, these things change and and things hit you in different ways. So for me right now, and this again, two weeks from now, I may switch this again. But for me today, my number two favorite ending is going to be Inside Out. So, Riley, how was the first day of school? Fine, I guess. Did you guys pick up on that? She sure mm-hmm. did. Something's wrong. Signal the husband. <clears throat> Uh-oh. She's looking at us. What did she say? Oh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, we left the toilet seat up. What is it, woman? What? So Inside Out for me is probably my favorite Pixar movie. I don't necessarily think it's the best, but it's it works for me on so many levels. It's as a just a pure masterpiece. I mean, it literally created a different way for little kids and parents to communicate about emotions through the lens of Inside Out. And as a parent and as someone who moved many, many times growing up, it just the ending just lands on me in such a significant way when I think about the pressures of of leaving family and just being sad for what you used to have and yet hopeful at the same time uh, of making new friendships and new memories and just the passage of time and growing up and things that used to be important now aren't as as important it's just so beautiful i love that movie so so much and the ending for me works every time when they finally get down to talk to riley and they have that moment uh, in the kitchen there or in the living room area it's just it's beautiful for me so inside out awesome nice uh so for me my second favorite is finding nemo and uh this is just it's a it's it was my favorite pixar movie for a very long time uh and it's just it's a very sprawling film. You know, they're traveling through the whole ocean uh, to, you know, for Marlon to find Nemo. And 
this just brings them back together and you see the change you know it mirrors kind of the the beginning after the prologue it kind of mirrors that whole opening and and just shows the growth and the change and how these two characters have grown together and uh it's it's i think it's really beautiful so that's my number two favorite pixar ending and this brings us to our number one picks all right jeff what is your favorite pixar ending so far so my number one the one that makes me weep every time it comes on the last five minutes of the film is Toy Story 3. Just <laughs> Great pick. Non, just gushing. Like, because if you think, you know, you talked about, Daniel talked earlier about Toy Story being the original Pixar film, right? And then you get Toy Story 2, which is great. And everybody, they announced Toy Story 3 is coming out, and everybody's like, how, what, how, right. why would you do this? Why? Well, it was genius on a couple of different levels. One, on the marketing level, the kids who grew up with Toy Story 1 were now going to college in Toy Story 3, if they were the same age. And so, the, the Andy growing up and moving on, and then, you, like Chad said too, it depends on where you are in your life, and having kids, it really changes your perspective of things and what things matter and i talk about in my dissertation about the the uh, affection in toy story the love of things and what they mean to us and symbolize to us and it just means a lot that movie means a lot to me so i just cry at the end of it it's just you can't april and i we can't watch it if it comes on tv and we're not in that we have to turn it we're just like nope kids sorry awesome awesome really solid number one pick uh chad uh are you gonna have the same number one pick as jeff listen there is only one right answer to this top three and that answer is toy story three <laughs> i had and, a feeling and, and, and you know i don't want to say the exact same things that jeff did but it's true i can't it doesn't matter if it doesn't matter how many times i've seen it i weep having a five-year-old and thinking forecasting into the future of sending that little boy who is my entire world away to be a man oh to go, uh, I can't even think about it now. I get choked up, uh, and it's just done so beautifully. And and uh, the you know the scene where he's giving his toys to the to the little oh, girl, yeah. it's just perfect. It's so perfect and beautiful, and it's it's as good. I mean, we talk a lot about filmmaking, and and these are animated features or whatever, but it's as good as it gets uh, from a filmmaking perspective. So yeah, it's Toy Story three. Awesome. Uh, I don't want to throw you guys for too much of a loop here. Uh, but my number one pick is also Toy Story 3. They mean a lot to me. My cowboy! Woody? What's he doing in there? There's a snake in my boot. There's a snake in my boot! <laughs> been my pal for as long as I can remember. He's brave, like a cowboy should be, and kind and smart. But the thing that makes Woody special is he'll never give up on you, ever. He'll be there for you, no matter what. You think you can take care of him for me? Okay, then. There's no question that Toy Story 3 has one of the best endings in film history and one of the best uh, uh, endings to a trilogy. 
and, and it is just so good. And you guys hit the nail on the head. It, it depends on where you are in your life at what time. And uh, I was that kid. Uh, I went to college the same summer that Toy Story 3 came out. And so uh, it just... It, it hit me so hard. I remember being an 18-year-old kid and, and, and crying when this movie came out. Um, and it still moves me to this day. It is just a beautiful, beautiful ending, a full circle closing to the trilogy, uh, and it's really moving. And I'm uh, super upset that they're doing a Toy Story 4. I hope, we, I hope we come back just like we said about this one and that we're happy that they did it and it makes a perfect sense. But for right now, I'm angry. Don't be angry, Don't be Daniel. Angry. I'm get angry. the best on it. Pete Doctor, Andrew Stanton, and Lee Uncritch are on this one. It's going to be emotional. It's going to be great. My guard will remain up until I <laughs> until I walk out of Toy Story 4. Uh, all right, so those are our favorite Pixar endings. I don't think there's necessarily a reason to do honorable mentions. Am I right? Anything? Anybody yeah, up? you're right. All right. So uh, that is our top three this evening. Uh, as always, we love to hear from you guys. So join us on social media. Follow us on Facebook. Search the Screeners Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at ScreenersCast. We love to hear from you. All right. We will see you next time. And that's a wrap. You've heard what the Screeners had to say. Now you be the critic. Head over to ScreenersPodcast.com and let us know what you think. See you next time.